Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein. This week's topic is very timely. Exclusivity or community. The dilemma of school selection policies. Some schools have elitist attitudes. They say, we're the Ivy League. We are the gold standards. And not only are we scholastically the gold standards, but we discriminate based on family types. If you come from a divorced home, maybe a home where the father is in the wrong profession, we believe that we have to keep a pristine standard that goes beyond scholastics. Well, is it halachically, hashkafically, a mutter, or is it against us, Tyra? Does it go against the whole credo of Klal Yisrael, concept of chesed of Klal Yisrael, the concept of looking out the 36 times for looking out for the oppressed the Yassim, the Almanu, Rashi says, refers to a divorced child as well. So here's an intro clip, a few intro clips we'll play from a divorcee we had on a few weeks ago talking about how no school in Lakewood this happened to be, even though it could happen anywhere, would take her child because she was divorced. Listen to this. One story that I had, which was so painful, right after the summer actually I was separated, my daughter was headed, she was going into pre-1A and I couldn't get her into school. And no matter how hard I tried, I, I, I literally went knocking on principal's doors and I begged them and I said, please take my daughter. And she's an adorable little girl. She's so cute. And I'm, no, we're full. We can't. One principal told me, we, we can't, we can't take your, your child. We can't, you know, she, she has, you know, a lot of baggage with her. And I said, she's an adorable girl. She says, well, in the morning and she watched the boxer just like every other girl. And she said, I'm so sorry. I just can't take her. And then there was another, um, when I knocked on the doors of bunches of schools, there was this feeling of like, we can't take you. We don't want you. One principal said, I really would take you, but if I took you, I would lose other parents. Now, I'm not going to take a position on it. I leave it to the listeners. But um, this is not scholastic-based. This is, look, you know, we want we don't want to have divorced children in our school. Here's Shlomi Hudarechnitz a number of years ago taking a very strong position against the Meistus, what it does to the children, and how this elitist attitude never existed before. Listen to this clip. I'd like to discuss a self-made, man-made problem that we created and is completely fixable if we just cared enough. A problem that causes our avreichim, achenu b'nei Yisrael, untold pain, incapacitating daily anxiety, rivers of tears, fathers who don't know where to turn, made to feel that they failed their innocent children, mothers who cry themselves to sleep every night, and pure bush of a robin, stinging shame to our same Kodesh, sheer embarrassment for a Tinoikish Rabban, that people five times their age wouldn't be able to cope with. A five-year-old told every day, tomorrow I promise these guys you'll be able to get on the bus with your friends. And tomorrow comes, and they're ready by the front door, their backpack bright and early, clearly excited, only to be told that it's just another few days, just another few days, when you'll be able to do, and you'll be able to join your friends. You think these children are stupid? You think for one second that they don't realize that they're the only ones being left out? At their tender young age, they try to put on a normal face till they get up and hide in their room and cry and cry more. 
His parents have already cried their hearts out to the Rabbanim, to the school administration. Please, please take our child. It's six weeks and he's still not in school. A 13-year-old girl who clearly sees that nobody wants her. She's the town's psylus. Can you imagine an innocent Basi Stroll putting on a face for her friends, claiming she hasn't had enough time to decide which school she wants to go to, only to lay her head down at night on the pillow, the pillow which is still wet from the tears of the night before, knowing that out of 15,000 girls, she's the only one that nobody wants. We feel unwanted if we don't get invited to a chasna. We have Tainus. Even if she eventually gets pushed into a school, how can that damage ever be repaired? Over the years, there are and have been angelic askanim who have gotten these kids into schools. Do you think for a second that the problem was resolved? We don't realize that our actions and inactions are life-altering. And then we ask, what are we doing wrong? Why are so many children going off the derech? Those memories, those nightmares will never go away. Broken families, publicly shamed children and their parents, ongoing pain and suffering. Who's going to take responsibility for all those tears? Who's going to take a cries for that seemingly never-ending pain? Who has the right, who has that godlike complex that feels they have the right to inflict such irreparable tsar? If you're ready to take the Achrayas, then stand up now. Show your face. Amoid, amoid. Shareid's moist. There are times when our tefillahs aren't in the skadal. They don't even get to the Eibishter. But our tears are genuine tears that can't come straight from our neshamas, never get blocked. The Eibishter, the Koyal Yochel, can't possibly ignore the tears of his precious Amanifchar. Yet we sit in our offices watching a Yiddish mother, a mother who has no limits on what she'll do for her children, while she cries her heart out. And our answer, I, I feel terrible. I wish I could accept your child. Baipush should have no room. You should know that Baipush should lose sleep every night over this. But what can I do? We're busting by the seams. The principal won't let. Or if I take you, then I'm going to have to take Yenem. You can't imagine how much I'm trying for you. I try every day. Spare me. The last time in life you get any credit for effort is in the 12th grade. Or in Lakewood, it's probably the 4th grade by now. We have a machla in Lakewood. No other out-of-town community would ever allow a child to be left without a school. In Los Angeles, if a child wouldn't have a school the first day, the whole community would be all over it. 
The same thing would happen in Baltimore, Chicago, Toronto, or anywhere else. This is basically a Lakewood Machla. Yes, there's a few kids in Muncie, more than a few kids in Brooklyn, but nowhere else. And in no other time in history was this problem close to the magnitude it is in Lakewood. And I mean the whole process, even the children that get in. How many of them and their parents schwitz for months, making phone calls, waiting for phone calls? How dare you destroy, and destroy another child's life because of your opinion of the other child? How dare you face Hashem by davening when you snuffed out a Yiddish and a Shema? Besides the Lashon Hara involved, and probably 90% of the time it's Maitzi Shemra, this is Mamish Shvichas If the school isn't good enough for your child, shut your mouth and go find them a school that works or create your own school just for your child. Make a yeshiva just for him. This way nobody will ever be able to have any negative influence on your child prodigy. But don't be surprised if in a few years you meet him Matzah Shabbos in J2, because you were right, he is brilliant. And he heard those phone calls that you made to those maestas for him and for his siblings. I call on every Pence principal. I call on every Reisha Maisid. I don't call on you. I'm munning you that from today on, if you ever get such a comment that if you take in that kid, the other family not send their kid to your school, have the courage to tell them, we apologize, but we clearly are not the place for your child prodigy. Now, here's a great Mechanach Halek with Reb Meyerhertz from Tajbar responding to Shlaim Yehuda Rechlitz. So, Reb Meir, Lakewood recently has been in the news because of the speech given by Shlaim Yehuda Rechnitz about the problem that there are children who don't seem to be getting into schools. Tell our listenership what are the problems they are encountering in Lakewood, and then perhaps afterwards we'll try to get to the solutions. Very good, I will try. Lakewood has two unique problems. Number one, an extraordinarily rapid growth. Just to give you an example, Rabbi David, and to your listeners, in 1995, there were exactly 5,000 children in the public schools and 5,000 children in the parochial school in the Maizdas. Today, that has shifted to 30,000 children in the Maizdas and the same 5,000, 5,500 in the public schools. This is a, a rate of growth which is unprecedented in any other community that we are aware of. That's number one. So there's a real genuine space problem. Not enough classrooms, classrooms not enough seats, and all the attendant problems of acceptance is, are impacted by this uh, by this uh, infrastructural stress. To answer your question, what is the solution? I think the solution is very simple. It's going to be harder to accept, but the solution is uh, very simple. I think if there's 50 or 60 or 70 or 100 children left at the end of the process or the enrollment process, all the mice just have to come together, throw a gyro, 
and accept them all into their schools per capita. You have, if you have a hundred out of a thousand, whatever, then you, your school has a thousand children. You take ten percent. You take this percent, etc. One one child per hundred, one child per per, per per fifty. Distribute the children. Don't make them feel bad. Nobody is selected because of who their parents are, who their their grandmother was, and what city they came from, and whether they came from Halab or whether they came from Helm or or any other place in the world. And just accept them per capita and solve it. I don't need machers and machers in. Uh, 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 I don't need outside forces. Well, Moises hold the key. They have the resources. They're the responsible party for solving the problem. So, and there's yeshivas in Lakewood. God bless them. Chelam Raisa, They can enforce that and they can provide the leadership to say if you if you don't join this lottery, you're mechutz lamachne. They make they come up with that declaration. The problem is resolved. The community listens to the Rashi Shiva. The Rashi Shiva have their finger on the pulse, and if they make such a takana, I think that the Majdus will step up to the plate. Now here is Reb David Yosef. The Reb David Yosef is the son of the Rishon Lutzian, the great, the Baal of the Abi Oimer, and many others for him, Reb Yosef. And he's the head of all the Sfaradi Majdus in Eretz Yisrael. His brother is the new Rishon Lutzian. And he's really talking about it both from a halachic point of view and from experience because, you know, famously, Sfardish uh, children in Eretz Yisrael, there are many Maistas that just will not take them, no matter how advanced they are scholastically. They say there is a story that Rabchatzkel Sarna, a number of Sfardi boys came to Hevron and they wanted to get in. And he said, um, I don't take, uh, you know, anybody who's on Ashkenaz. And they, they said, but we want to learn in a Ashkenazi yeshiva because we want that standard of lumdis. And he looked at them and he said, well, that's why I can't take you because I want to have an Ashkenazi yeshiva. So it was a famous conversation. So here's Rabbi David Yosef speaking about the Messiah that he got from both his father, Rabbi Yashiv, the Chetalik Lebracha, and Rabbi Shach, the Chetalik Lebracha. You ask a very, very difficult question. We, as the truth, we in Eretz Israel, we suffer a lot about that. It's a very sad story. In the United States, I think it's much, much better because uh, even Balei Tshuva, they can go to good schools if they are real, really Balei Tshuva. And uh, they see that they behave according to the halakha. The house is kosher, 100%. And they are religious. They accept them. In Eretz Israel, many places, unfortunately, they uh, if the parents are Sephardim, the father is Avrech Koilel, learning Torah. The family are 100% kosher, good. But if the sources, they are Sephardim, Ashkenazim, they don't accept them. And in our generation, when so many people, Baruch Hashem, in Eretz Israel became religious, we have to accept everyone. And, uh, you know, in Israel, the population of Israel, um, the Sephardim became from the yeshivot, we are the majority now. If you count all the Sephardic yeshivot, and uh, Ponovich, Hebron, all the places, they have 20-30% Sephardim together, we are the majority. And I think it's very, very important to accept each other, to give respect to each other, and to live together. We have the same Torah, Baruch Hashem, the same Torah, same halachot. We have some differences, Harambam said like that, and Tosfot said like that, Ashkenazim follow Tosfot, follow Rashi, we follow Harambam. We can live together with that. 
And Be'ezrat Hashem, I hope that situation will change. So, I know, I want to tell you, Rav Yoshiv, alav shalom. Rav Yoshiv, a Goen Rav Yoshiv. He was the greatest Posek last generation. I knew him very well. He was fighting all the time with schools, girls, schools that they didn't accept Sephardim. He was fighting. More than that, he told the mayor of Jerusalem, Uri Lopoliansky, he was the mayor of Jerusalem, he told him, don't give money to schools they don't accept Sephardim. Don't give money. Tell them, I said, don't give them money. And also Harav Shach. Harav Shach established yeshivot for Sephardim. Harav Shach was fighting for the Sephardim all of his life. So we have to follow the Gdolim of last generation. And we have to be together. I hope it will happen. I want to add on to what the, 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 the Rav is saying, that Ramesha Feinstein in the Tshuva writes that yes. he says a boy who comes from a totally irreligious house yes. and they send him to yeshiva and he says, Ramesha says, and his parents insist that when he comes home, he takes off his tzitzit Yes. And in the house, they don't eat kosher. Ramesha says that as long as in the yeshiva, he does everything according to halacha, you have to take the boy. Yes. Yes. And I want to tell you, this problem, Baruch Hashem, in Eretz Israel, we have uh, Rabbanim with experience. What to with a boy or girl that made teshuvah and their parents are not religious? From one side, they have to make kibud avahem. From the other side, no compromises about Judaism. I want to tell you, my father had a brother. The brother was a colonel in the army of Israel, and uh, he was not religious. He was learning in yeshiva before Milchemet um, Hashichur, before 1948. Uh, he was he started uh, with Etzel, then with the army. He became a colonel. He got married. He was not religious. My father gave him respect all the time. And his son made the shuva. He became a Vrech Kolel. And uh, the parents couldn't accept that at the beginning. They said, you have to give us respect, you have to eat in our house. So they came to my father. My father spoke to them very nice, explained them. They made the house kosher at the beginning. Then they started to keep mitzvot. They saw their son so good, so midot. Uh, they saw his wife, his children. His children were growing up very nice, very good with with Irat Shamayim. Uh, my uncle and his wife did teshuva because of that. And when we know how to organize the relationship between the Balei Teshuvah and their family, um, they will see that they, they are afraid that if someone became religious, he will Shabbat, he will come to their house, he will shout, Shabbat, Shabbat. And I think it's very, very important to accept each other, to give respect to each other, and to live together. Now here's Rabbi Nachem Eisenstein. Rabbi Nachem Eisenstein was a Makur, very close trouble, Yashiv, and he's going to give over the psak, the psakim that he heard about discrimination in these matters. Schools that have, quote-unquote, an elitist view, when they say we have very high standards how to let children in, right? Do they also have the right to say, not only are we mockbit on whether the, the, the boy or the girl could keep up with the, with the, with the limud, with the scholastics, etc., but we don't want you if you're not from a certain house. Father was, let's say, working, 
And the school did not want if if the father is working. What would Rebel and the boy was hundred percent up to? What would Rebel Yashiv hold about that? Uh, I, I, first of all, I don't believe. I don't believe there's a school that there's a school that run by Erlicha people that will not let a child in because the parents are working. There's Baruch Hashem. There's many, many, especially in America, it's much more common as over here. Parents that they learned many years in yeshiva for parnasa reasons. They had to go and seek a parnasa, and they run the house altiris akodesh mamish. That when the children see that the parents come home at four or five o'clock or at six o'clock, and they run to the base medish after copying something to eat and saying hello to their wife and to the children. What he gets. I don't believe that a child was brought up in such a house and is exposed to the love of Torah, to Avos of Torah, and to Yerushalayim, that a school would not let in a child if that's the only reason. So here's the question Correct. I put to you. If I was coming today, Trouble Yashiv, how would he respond to the following question? In our community, many yeshivas have this very high standards. There's a sense of elitism where the Harvard, Yale, brisk of our community, whatever the case may be. And when it comes to the girls who are, the, or the boys, who don't fit in, everybody says, listen, it's not my problem. Yes, the, the, the Kahila needs a school for them, so that's the Kahila's problem, but it's not my. Whereas everybody just passes the buck and says, that's not my, my Christ is just to run my yeshiva. How do we deal with a situation like that? We deal very simply and practically with uh, Rabbi Matasyon Solomon, and was made a takana with the Haskama of Rav Yashav. That he came personally to Rav Yashav to discuss this Indian, is that all the schools have to get together, the Rabbanim in the city have to get together and make sure that every child has a place to study, to go to school, which is Tsugapas, which is fit for him. There's everybody's the Aleph schools, there is no Bay school. So do the Aleph schools have to accept the Bay students? If there's no other place, they have to accept them. But but the, the answer is that the the kahila, the kahila, the rabbanim in the city have to, and the manalim in the schools should help them to set up a school for the base the base students. But if there is none, then they would be obligated to take them. No question about it. On this topic, we're going to be interviewing uh, a parent whose child asked not to be named, whose child was rejected to high school even though she passed all the tests, was on par. Because of a different problem, she had gone to a weaker elementary school, and they didn't want to accept from a weaker elementary school. They felt it would damage the image of the school. We'll have Rebbe Ruch Steinfeld, the Robin Flatbush, a principal for many years. He'll be talking about the Takhanus Yeshua Ben Gamla. And the very interesting question, are schools today have any obligation to be Mamale, the Takhanus Rebbe Yeshua Gamla, which the Shulchanar brings the halacha. And the Shulchanar says very strong things against the community that doesn't provide education and doesn't respect Takhanus Yeshua Ben Gamla. It gives all kinds of really harsh clawless. But the question is, can each school say, look, it's the, we're not the communal school. We're a, a private school, even though we take communal money. I mean, there are ads for their Lava Malkus and building funds are and all the things, but they say, no, 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 we're still not a communal school. Well, are they a communal school? Are they not a communal school? He'll talk about, is the Takana discuss girls as well? The Takana should be showing Ben Gamla. Now, he'll discuss, can schools force people, the parents, to accept upon themselves chumris so that their kids should be accepted? Parents have to sign that they won't do X, Y, and Z. Schools have a lot of power, especially places where there is a shortage of schools and, you know, can I know a lot of children? What about can schools, he's going to discuss, hold themselves to certain standards except for one thing? If you have money, we do not push those standards upon you. 
Do they have the right to make that? Say, look, we have to meet budget obligations and we have to live in the real world, quote unquote. So for the children whose parents don't have money, there's one set of standards. For the children who have parents do have money, there's a separate set of standards. Is there any either halacha shkafik issue with that? Or is reality what they have to deal with? And then he'll discuss, is having discriminatory school acceptance policies halachically allowed? We'll have the historian Yehuda Geberer from Eretz Yisrael confirming, that's his opinion, that elitist society and school acceptance is a new phenomenon, very you know, nuanced conversation. And here's a, uh, an interview you must listen to if you're having any types of problem. A great askin, Shirley Halpert, he's the person you want to speak to if your kids cannot get into school. He's on the ground. He said there are now 70 girls not in high school in Lakewood two weeks before school. He said some kids don't get into Hanukkah, but he turns over the world to get kids in. He leaves his number and his partner's cell numbers on our line. So if you're having any problems, Shirley Halpert is somebody who is a tzaddik, really a tzaddik yisaydaylam. Uh, what's his tzaddik yisaydaylam? What did Yosef do? He died for all of the world, for all of Klal Yisrael, certainly. The other person, by the way, in the title who's called a tzaddik is Nayach. He saved the world. So somebody who looks out for the benefit of others, I call a tzaddik, as I love, should make for a fascinating uh, program. Between our intro and the uh, interviews, we're going to have a fascinating interview with Steve Rosenberg. This week was the yard site of the Tasha Rebbe of Montreal, certainly a famed tzaddik. Steve Rosenberg, who's the chairman of Greystone, one of the big ballet tzedakah in the world, Yiddish Shabbalah Tzedakah, certainly for Nitzrachim, people who are sick, etc. He's their address, and he's going to talk about the incredible impact the Tasha Rebbe had in him and tell us some marvelous stories of miraculous things that the Tasha Rebbe did. And I think it's interesting to hear it from somebody who will say he's a modern Orthodox Jew who knows absolutely nothing about Hasidus. So you're hearing it, somebody from outside the fold, which gives it sort of some added credence. This week, um, I will not have a Dvartar in the Parsha. I've been struggling with one of those black moods that I get periodically, and this one was a real woozy. It lasted all week, and I just couldn't put my head to, uh, you know, writing uh, uh, something on the, the Chumash. So my apologies to the Eilam, and hopefully this cloud will lift, and I'll be able to do it next week. But now sometimes they come for a day, and sometimes they come for a week, and very hard to control, very hard to f- actually function under. But the riddles of the week, I will get to. So here are the two riddles of the week. Now, we like this riddle because the Magan Avram in the Yeshiva Shavel, in the Yeshiva world, in fact, in all of Poland, he was like sort of Shulchan Aruch of Magan Avram. He was the master of the Shulchan Aruch. I say it over many times. If they say over that Rabbi Zikol Hanan, when he was a, a younger man, uh, he was in a town that Rabbi Kivega came to the town. And um, there was a huge crowd came to see Rabbi Kivega. They didn't let anybody in, I guess. Rabbi Kivega was a zakin already. And Rabbi was a young man. He knocked on the door. They said, well, you know, why should we let you in? I guess the Gabi of Rabbi Kivega. He said, I'm a badchen. And I could make, the, I'll give the, the rubble have a lot of enjoyment. I badchen, you know, piske taisvis. So he said he came in and he badchen all the piske taisvis on Masech Tezvachim for Rabbi Kivega. Kivega was very near there, and he said, you gaman vas learns to. So Bezil Chana told him. He said, I was young, and I was brash, and I was mischatzif, so I asked. I said, um vas learned to rav. So he said, Kivega looked at him, and he says, learn shulchan aruch, 
Unich probier verstehen the Magen Avram. I learn Shulchan Aruch and I try, I, I, I make a great, a great effort to understand the great words of the Magen Avram. That's the esteem that he was held in. So here's a kasha on the Magen Avram. Kasha on the Magen Avram is a big thing. In the Rechaim Simen Chaf of Cotton Bays that Magen Avram brings from the Kisvei that you should sleep at night with a towel scotton. And what's his raya? He says, the Gemara says in Menachas that when David saw himself in the Beis HaMerchatz, right, in the, in the bathhouse, without any clothing on, he said, oh, you have no mitzvahs on me. And then he remembered he had Mila, so he felt better. So, so he asked, why did, why did he have to wait for the bathhouse to have no mitzvahs? There's the whole day he had tzitzis. In the bathhouse, he didn't have a tzitzis on. He said he should have said every night, he should have asked this, had the same regret David should have said, Oi, at night I have no mitzvahs on me because I don't have tzitzis. And he would have come to the same conclusion of the meal. Why do you have to wait for the bathhouse? You see that he must have slept with tzitzis. So he always had mitzvahs on him at all times. That's the, uh, and he says, therefore we should sleep without tzitzis. Is that a mugget over on Paskins? From Alpisaid. Alpisaid. The question is, we don't understand it. What does it say in this week's parasha? When the Melech sits on his throne, because of Leis Mishnah Torah, the Karabai Kolyumechayev, he carries the Sefer Torah with him. He reads from it all the days of his life. And what does the Medrash say? He had it with him all the days of his life. He carried him. And when he slept, and the Yashan, he says, Even when I sleep, refers to the night. Right? So, uh, so uh, if he had the safe attire by him by night, that's why David didn't feel that he was Aram and Amitzvah. So, what's the Kasha of Kivega? What's the Rai of Kivega? Or from the Kivega and from the Ari? That it was only in the base Amerchats he had this because he must have had Titus on at night. Really, he didn't wear tzitzis at night. But since he had the safe attire by night, he was never Aram and Amitzvah. So his raya that the rest that you need, tzitzis palayla, l'chayra, goes away. That is our ha'ara on great Magan Avram. That's our first riddle of the week. What's our second riddle of the week? It says about the Melech again, No going back to Mitzrayim. Now the Rambam, who actually did live in Mitzrayim for a while, writes, you're allowed to return to Mitzrayim for schaira or pragmatia for, bit, for, for, myth, for business. And he, then he says something interesting. But if you end up remaining there, you went for business and you remained not for business, you're either a love, but it's a love shame by Maisa. Why? You can't say the Maisa is, the action is coming to Mitzrayim. You came to Mitzrayim for Heter. Staying there, just remaining there, that Shia is not called the Maisa. So he says, if you came beheta, the Rambam says, and then you ended up staying there, it's called a lav shemimaisa, and you're not like a pirate's appella on the Rambam. The Rambam himself writes in numerous places, by Nazir Bebeisakfaris, this is Perikeim Elchus Naziris, Halacha Yudches, a few cases there. A Nazir comes into a house where there's a goisis, and then the guy dies. Bechari came in beheta. The Rambam says it's a lav shiish by Maisa, and he's going to get Malchus for remaining in the house. I came in beheta. So you see, Shia waiting is called a Misa. Same thing by Klaim. This is Perikyut Halacha uh, Halacha Lamed. If a person put on Klaim for whatever was an Oynes or for some other case, Pishagig, and afterwards he found out, he knew, the Shia, or the Ramam says another case. Ramam says, what's going to be the Halacha if they will master him and he's going to get Malkus for the Klaim? But then he's, 
He said, okay, I'm going to get Malchus. So I put them on. And then he stays for another hour and they warn him another 10 times. He's going to get 11 Malchus in. Why? Because the Shia has a din of a Misa. So you have Sai by Nazir in a house, Sai by uh, the case of Klaim. And the third case is the, uh, this is the Mishnah says, watch the halacha. If somebody comes into the Harabayas, Shia Baharabayas, we rebuilt, came in Beheter, and then he was Nitma. So the, the Mishal Melech brings Rias that if he stays Shia as a Tomei in the Arabias, this is Mishal Melech Paragimel, she's going to be Chayev on that Shia too. So why, we're asking, why is Klayim? Why is Nazar Besak Faris? Why is the Shia in Bebeis Hamigdash? All these when you came in Beheta, but the Shia Boik Samaisa, and yet the Rambam says over here, Mitzrayim, if you came in Beheta, and then afterwards you changed your mind, you said, I'm going to live here, not for them. That Shia is called Aim Bebeisa. Those are our two riddles of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. Let's go to our fabulous Sheer. This week was the Tashirabiz Yartsai, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you were about as close to him as anybody. To so tell us a little bit about your experiences. You're not a chassid, so it's not coming from somebody who like just believes everything the Rebbe does or says you're actually sort of a almost questioning yeah. outsider. Tell us about what you saw in the Tashirabba that turned uh, a modern American businessman. Um, into such an, an acolyte of him and, and a believer. And, and what impressed you so much? What inspired you? So what I, what I would say is, you are right. I did not at all grow up in a Hasidic family. Um, and I grew up in a modern Orthodox, but very spiritual uh, family in Miami. Um, literally no contact with any sort of Hasidic sex uh, growing when someone came to my office one day in New York and said, the Grand Rabbi of Montreal wants to meet you, um, I didn't even know what he was talking about. And um, somehow it came to be that I, I did end up going up to Montreal to, uh, to meet him. The, the Rebbe himself was, I don't think that he was five feet tall, and I'd be shocked if he weighed 90 pounds. Um, what impressed me the most about the Rebbe was his love, right? Um, what I what I saw with him was unconditional love in an almost irrational way. He he subordinated himself literally a hundred percent to to others. 
the community might have been teetering on the verge of bankruptcy because they they had to pay a water bill, they had to pay real estate taxes, and someone would come in at the end and give them the money to pay these things off. But before he got a chance to give the money to the his lieutenants to pay the bill, a poor person came in and needed that money for a wedding, for something, for a sick child, for something. That's where the money would go. And so in an almost irrational way, his, you know, he just loved people so much. And uh, um, what he taught me was that loving others in an, in an uncomfortable way, right, is, is, is godly. And to, um, you know, whenever people say, and, and I, 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 you know, you hear people say all the time, it's like, I'm comfortable with what I'm given. I think I learned from the Rebbe is that you should never be comfortable with what you're giving to others. Because if you're comfortable, that means you're not really, you're not, you're not pushing on your insecurities. I've discussed this a few times. I, I think that, you know, God created the parent-child relationship to show us how he feels about us. He's the parent where his children and like any parent and, uh, you know, if someone does me a favor, I want to you know, return that favor two, three times as much. If someone does my child a favor, I'm out of control. You know, I want to, there's nothing that they can ask me for I, I wouldn't want to do for them. And I think God's the same way. It's like, if you love his children, and especially if you love them by putting yourself at risk, right, for them because you love them so much, I think he behaves to you in an irrational way. And that's how I see it. That's, that's the Mita Kinegin Mita. It's beautiful. Share with us a story about the Rebbe. Like, there are so many interesting stories you had with him. You were so close to him for many years. Share with us an interesting story. One story, the Rebbe would often just call me in the office and say, please, you know, uh, ask me to come up, be in touch by midnight. And he would, you know, to, and he would want to meet with me and... Um, so, so, and this happened not one time, many times. I, I get up there, it's midnight, I'm like waiting to see him. He had someone in his office, he didn't sleep almost at all. He was, you know, I, I don't know, maybe he slept an hour uh, a night. His, I don't think he was slept in a bed until he got very sick at the end. I don't think he slept in a bed in 50 years. So anyway, so I'm waiting for him. It's one o'clock, it's two o'clock, it's three o'clock. I mean, like my head's hitting the table. I'm exhausted after working a full day here in the city. And all of a sudden, like who's coming out of his office that, that's kept me waiting for like a few hours, like a 12-year-old boy who's having problems at school, who may have a ton of dysfunctional family. It's like, yeah, I was a large contributor to the Rebbe. I mean, the truth is he was a contributor to me, but it was, you know, his love. It was his love for a child that was having difficulty. So that's that's a story that was repeated over and over that's a, again. That's a, that's a beautiful story. He kept yeah. his, his largest donor waiting for a few hours in the middle of the night because he had a child who was yeah. in pain. Exactly. Yeah. A fabulous story. A absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are other stories where, you know, he would just call me and tell me to do something, whether or not it was buying a piece of real estate. I didn't even know what I was doing. And, and, and everything he told me to do, I would say almost everything was illogical. And every single thing turned out really well. Okay, give me an example. 
yeah, he he had his lieutenant, you know, I get a call from his lieutenants telling me that they just wanted to have a meeting in the office. And it turned out, I didn't even remember saying, yeah, just come over to the office. You can have a meeting. Of course, you can use my office. And all of a sudden, like the who's who of uh, New York real estate are marching into my office. I didn't even know what was going on. And they, you know, I asked them, like, what are you doing? It, and they, they said, oh, we're buying this big building, big empty building right next to Goldman Sachs uh, downtown. I think it was like 67 Broad Street. And um, I said, what are you going to do with it? I don't know. We don't know what we're going to do with the building. But I said, good. I knew not to ask any more questions. So I, I basically they had the meeting in the office to make a long story short. After the meeting, they come out. You know, Steve, the Rebbe wants to talk to you. You know, they needed a $500,000 for a deposit. I said, Rebbe, is, it's refundable, right? If you if you don't like the building, the answer is no, it, was, it wasn't refundable. So, uh, you know, I, I just, we ended up doing it. And then a month later, there was more money due on the deposit. It's It was out of control. The whole situation was totally out of control. And principal life was the company that owned it. They were selling it. They, they were buying it for like $55 million, right? And this is like a round building. No one knew what to do. Like, so a month later, now there's $5 million in it. And still, I've got people like really running around the building trying to figure out what to do with the building. No one could figure anything out. And then I said, Rebbe, this $5 million hard money deposit, that's just going to get lost because, because number one, it's a $55 million purchase and no one has any clue what to do with this building. He said, don't worry. Out of the blue, I get a call from, out of the blue, I get a call from a Japanese bank saying, Steve, we heard you may be buying a building. We'd like to finance it. I was afraid they were going to ask me what I'm going to do with it because I had no idea. Um, and then, you know, the, the Japanese bank ended up saying, how about if we just give you $45 million of the 55 I said, Rebbe, that's a, that sounds good. I don't even know why they're, gi- they're giving that to us. We're still $5 million short. He says, fly to Iowa, where Principal Life is located. And, uh, I, and I said, Rebbe, they're just going to take the $5 million, and they're going to say, thank you. We're going to sell it to somebody else. It turns out that the um, I go to Iowa. I say, yeah, you've got the deposit. I, I know how this story plays out, so I can't close. All of a sudden, they come back to me an hour later. They said, let, let us talk about it and come back. And they just they just reduced the price like out of nowhere. They shouldn't have. They should have just taken my money and sell it to someone else. They just reduced the price. I still don't know. So now we close. I don't even know what to now do. You have, now you have an empty building on Wall Street with $50 empty, million. Yeah, someone mentions to me, it's like, you know, this... This used to be the IT&T headquarters, and it's got really heavy floor plates. I said, how does that help me? So they're, oh, they're, now the phone companies are now starting to, uh, are starting to, you know, long distance phone companies that have heavy machinery. And so we ended up uh, opening the building as like a phone company building. And um, little, you know, slowly but surely, companies started leasing. In the, in the space. And uh, again, to make a long story short, we ended up uh, selling the building for like $75 million. And uh, everything went back to, uh, to Tush, of course, uh, which I wanted, which I wanted because this was not a normal situation. And uh, But um, yeah, so I, and I have many stories like that. I People 
came out, like I would see someone in touch. And I was there for Yontif for almost 20 years, almost every Yontif with my family. And um, I'd see someone that looked as out of place as I did there. And I was like, what are you doing here? It's, oh, well, my wife and I were married for, you know, for 15 years. We couldn't have any children. We came to the Rebbe and he blessed us and um, told us he would pray for us and told us we would have a child. And lo and behold, you know, within a year, we had a child. So, I mean, there were stories like this, many, many, many stories like this. And, yeah. and the, does the Rebbe inspire you personally after his passing? Has that memory still live with you? Yeah, I mean, I think the memory that lives with me is, is in my daily interactions with people. I aspire to, like, every word coming out of my mouth and every action that I take. Uh, whether or not in business or otherwise, is it a loving word? Is it a loving action? And that screen was, was you know, gifted to me from the Rebbe. So I would say my entire life is, you know, could I love better? Could I love this person better? Whether or not it's a member of my immediate family or a stranger or the taxi driver. It's like, you know, people that have, uh, a, you know, a tough, now everyone has tough days. Most days are tough for most people. And um, and the Rebbe just showed me what it is to to love with every word and every action and every smile. And, and what was so amazing to the Rebbe, which I tried to adopt also, is that is that it wasn't it, it was certainly, let's say, when he was helping someone financially, sure, they needed the money. But the way he did it. The, to make sure that the recipient did not feel like a beggar, to make sure that that no one knew that the recipient was receiving money, so that he wouldn't be embarrassed. So, like the 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 extent to which he went to make sure that the recipient felt like 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 esteemed, and um, even when someone behaves in a in, in in a way that was not appropriate, he would never embarrass someone. More easily see the way Hakadosh Baruch Hu loves us by seeing the way the Rebbe loved others. And I got to tell you, there's no better feeling than to feel so incredibly loved by your Creator. Like there's no like all you do is want to do things in return. You know, I, I, I would say because of my experience with the Rebbe and, and, and what I, as a result of that, feeling my experience with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and feeling so much love, I literally, I'm, I'm jumping out of my skin all day long. Like, what can I do in return? Like, how can I love your children? Because I feel so much love it's, is, you know, what I learned from the Rebbe. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Joining us from New York is a parent who has experienced some difficulty with the current school system. Welcome. Um, can you please share with us your story? Sure. So, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Baruch Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us a group of girls. We have only daughters, Baruch Hashem. And each one of them brings us nafas. I'm extremely thankful to the Rabbani Shalom. Um, when the kids were younger, at one point, we had them all in the same elementary school, except for our youngest. And when we saw that they weren't doing well, each one of them, we put each one into a school where we felt they would prosper. And really, Baruch Hashem, that's what happened. So at one point, we were parents in a different school for each one of our children. 
Baruch Hashem, again, like I said, all of them, they're each Balas Nachas, and I, I wish it on everybody. Our youngest um, has a learning disability. So when it was time for her to go into first grade, we had the opportunity to push her into a mainstream school. But based on the guidance of our amazing Robin Redison, we felt that if we did that, she would have eight years of struggle, and by the time she got to high school, she would be finished before she even started. So we put her into not a mainstream school, an out-of-the-box school, and she did phenomenal. She was just, Baruch Hashem, she strived. When you sat at our Yontif table or our Shabbos table, you didn't know, you couldn't tell which one of our daughters went to a mainstream school and which one didn't. She was, she's, art, she's articulate, she's intelligent. And she's just disease, and she, she was knowledgeable in, 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 in the Parsha and the Amtoivim. And Baruch Hashem, the truth is I knew what was coming towards eighth, when it came to eighth grade. I knew that the schools just wouldn't be lining up for her only because she wasn't coming from a mainstream school. When it came to high school, our older group of daughters all went to the same high school. So we've been parents in good standing in one school for over 10 years. And not only have we been parents in good standing, because as you'll hear, our Reverend Rebison, we had come down to the school um, with our Robin Rebidson to try to get our youngest in, and the, the owner, the Hanholo, whatever you want to call him, he said to our Robin Rebidson, he said that these parents have been cyber Rukhni and cyber Gashmi, stellar textbook parents. So our Rebidson looked at him and said, okay, what's the problem? So when it came for high school, we applied to three local schools, and including the one where our older girls have, have gone to and still go to. And we applied to two schools that were 45 minutes from where we live, mainstream schools but with an excellent resource room. So to get for the two schools that we applied to that were 45 minutes away, there was a test, a standardized test that you had to take before you got your interview. It was called, I believe, the JSAT, something along those lines. And it's, it's a test that's not made up by the school. It's made up by an organization, and it's marked by an, or, by an organization. And our daughter scored in the 85th percentile, which, I mean, says everything that you need to know about what we did for, for elementary school. We had our interviews in the, in the high schools, and one after the other, either they didn't get back to us, or they said, I'm just, we're really sorry, there's no room, we can't service her. And school after school after school, um, it's beyond extremely painful to know that nobody wants your daughter. Because of the school she was coming out of. Because of the school that she was coming out of. I had said to the, when we went to the high school where our daughters still go to um, with our Robin Rebidson, and this was after the initial interview with the principal, we said to them that if she had gone to a mainstream elementary school and had a lousy report card, you would take her. But because she's coming from a school that's not a mainstream school, you don't want that name in your school. He didn't deny it, but he didn't say yes. Um, at that point, I had actually been in touch with Mamish Atzadik, Amalek, Shelly Halpert, last year when I was involved helping completely unbeknownst what was in store for us, helped another child get into school. And at that point, that's when I reached out to him. He's Mamish, Claudius Rowe was lucky to have him. And he, he guided us, and he was there every step of the way for us. And ultimately, Baruch Hashem, with a lot of tears and a lot of tears and a lot of siyata dishmaya, she was accepted to a high school with open arms, the late showing the local school, and picked from the Ravona Shalom who sent us after we said yes, and they said yes. HaKadosh Baruch who sent us, Simon, our Rav always says that HaKadosh Baruch who talks to you, but you have to listen. When we said yes, they were just, like I said, he sent us signs that it was just the right place for her. If I, if I could give physics to the parents that are out there, you're not alone. You never give up on your child, and you have to encourage your child, and you have to let them know, and never stop turning over the world for them. You know, the fact that there are still kids that don't have high schools, regardless of what community they live in, and just because my daughter got into high school does not mean that, I, that, I, that it's off my mind, and I'm like, okay, Baruch Hashem, my daughter is good. If every child that doesn't have a school 
is our child. Every child deserves a place at the table. There's, there are schools for the Aleph Talmidos, and, and the truth is to be a school full of Aleph Talmidos, there's no kunst to teach an Aleph Talmidah. You know, and Lola Lenu, there are schools for children that have gone off the derech and, and have other issues. There are schools for them too, but there's no school, or mind you, a seminary for that matter, for a girl who just wants to grow in your Shemayim and Torah and love of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's all about academia and pressure, and that's not what it should be like. It should be a warm, loving, caring environment where the girls feel that it's an Ari Miklat and they want to grow. And like I said, just because my daughter has a school doesn't mean that I haven't stopped thinking about all the other children. I, I'm Amish, I daven for it every day. Every child, whether a boy or a girl, deserves a place at the table and deserves a fair shot in a high school. Here's my question to you, because the reason they pay me is to take the other side of arguments, okay? Sure. If, if you look at the Gaisha schools... You know, the good, the top, you know, you have the Ivy League and you have the second tier, the top 20. They say, look, you know, we're interested, we're a business. We're interested in the best kids. Um, those are the kids who ultimately will be successful, will bring pride to our school, etc. Why can't Jewish schools take the same position? We want to be top 20. We want to be top 40. We want to be Ivy League. Why should they worry about these kids? So you actually said it. You said, you know, it's a business. If you read Roy Freifeld's biography, which I just finished a few weeks ago, there was a Takufa at Chaim Berlin, and this is going back to the, to the 70s, where there was a group of boys from a more modern Orthodox neighborhood that wanted to go to Chaim Berlin because they had an interest in learning. And they went, Van Hollow went to Rav Huttner and said that, you know, if we take these boys, there are other parents that already called us that said they're going to pull their kids out. But Rav Huttner said, and it's in the book, I'm not something that I'm making up, but Hutner said, are these boys genuinely interested in learning? And Hanhol said, yes. He said, and I quote, I don't remember what page it's on, but I quote, Chinuch is not a business. Chinuch is Chinuch. And everybody deserves a chance. One of those five boys today is Rabbi Kaufman, the Rosh Hashiva from Waterbury. Imagine if he would have been written off. We wouldn't have a Rabbi Kaufman today. Chinuch is not a business. You, you know, that when I went to Yeshiva, and, you know, today I, I'm where I, I would like to think in the community that I live, uh, I'm... I, I wouldn't say I'm an Askin, but I'm, I'm a Balabas. I give, I give a shear. I'm a member of Hatzala. I'm just, when I went, there was always, there was an olive shear, a bay shear, a gimel shear. There was even a dollar shear. There was just, it was, it was, there were tears, and, you know, everybody just had a place. I, I don't know when it became that if you struggle academically, there's no place for you. That's not what Sarah Shanir had in mind. When she started the, the Beis Yaakov movement in Europe, it was for, it was to keep the girls off the streets so they wouldn't get swept up by the Haskalah. Now we're closing the doors on a girl that struggles? There's something, to me, again, I'm not a mechanic. I'm a regular guy, but to me, there's something wrong with that. You're saying that chinuch is not a business. Chinuch is not a business. Chinuch is about, edu again, I I'm coming from a parent's perspective. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a rebbe. I'm not a rov. I'm a regular guy. But chinuch is to inculcate into our sons and daughters a love of Torah, a love of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, a love of davening, a love of doing chesed, a love of being a, a, a love of being a yid and making Hakadosh Baruch Hu proud. Why would you say to Mechanchem who feels that Chinuch is a business? I would say you're in the wrong business. <laughs> okay, very well put. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Joining us from Flatbush is Rabbi Beirich Steinfeld. He's a rav in Flatbush. He's also the head of a Heksha Dovertai. He's been a Malamed principal, an English principal. He was Rabbi Miller for 20-some-odd years. He's a Talmud of the Mir, Yishalayim, like me, a little bit after me. Um, he's a columnist, widely read in many different publications. Welcome, Rabbi Beirich. 
Thank you. The Gemara in Layachta says that Zachar Oisaya Ishlatay, right? Yeshua ben Gamla, right? That he created the first school. He was massacring the first schools in Kali Yisrael. Every community, originally it started with every region, and ultimately it became that every city should have a school. And it's, it's brought in the Shulchan Aruch and uh, in Yeridea that Meshivin Malamdei Tinaikis Bechali Ir, and a very strong Russian, in Loiha Yishivu, if they didn't have schools for Tinaikis in every year, Machrivin Ha'ir, they would destroy the city. Very strong Russian, right? Right. And, it's an um, interesting thing because, right, the, the Gemara brings and, it down. The Gemara. And the Gemara doesn't bring that, by the way. Right. The Gemara brings it down as a takana, mainly for the orphans, for people who don't have a father to teach them. That's where the takana initiated. In other words, really, according to, in the Sefer says that, that the takana was only for, um, if a child is, doesn't have a father to teach him and doesn't have a father to spend on his schooling, he would go without schooling. So the Gemara says that first he established Tavi Yeshiva Yerushalayim, and then he saw that wasn't sufficient, so he said in every schooner and every neighborhood that should be a Yeshiva. Now, the reason we have Yeshivas is because, uh, according to some Roshayim, is because if you would just have for the people the them, then the, they wouldn't be able to afford it. They wouldn't be able to have the malamdan. So therefore, they wanted to make it more of an even scale. So they decided that they would tax the community, and the community would have to pay, just like you have to pay for a chazan and for a rav to pass mishailas and and other uh, communal needs. You have, the city of themselves get taxed and have to have a malamdan tanaikas. Then there's halachas, can have more than 25 or, uh, uh, in a class, and so on and so forth. Here's my question, Rabbi Shaila. And it's, it, it, that's the Lushan in Machrivan Ir is the Lushan in, in Reish from Hay and Hokus Malamdin. Based on Tajbat. Yeah, and, and additionally, it also has another Lushan, a different Simon, Machrivan Anshir. They would put them in Cherem, right? Yeah. Tamat, you don't see such a Lushan in the whole Shokhara. So here's my question to you. Let's say you have a city that has 1,000 kids, and they set up a school that's for 950 kids. And 50 kids, they're not Meshiva in the school. They say, look, we set up the 950. Enough. We don't. Does the Takana imply that it should be for all the children? Well, they do what they have to do. So, so first of all, it's, it's, the Takana is only for a certain age group. Uh, according to most of the it's from 5 to 13. for that age group. Okay. It's just important group. to know. Um, the question is a very good question. And the question you can ask is even stronger because the Aloha in the Gemara is, if let's say I can only afford for myself and or only my son to learn. Who gets Kadima? Myself or my son? So Gemara says if I myself am more mamulach, whatever that Russian is, more salty or more sharp, I come before my son. So it's, it, it, it would be a shtick of chiddush then. Even though the father has a chiddush, the matam leishos b'neichem, the matam atem comes first. So, I mean, you're asking a very good question. If a city sets up for 950 children, and there's 50 children that are not uh, uh, set up for, the question is, is there yoytza this machrinen or machrinen? Um, it depends which achayim we go by. It really does. I mean, um, some will say if this is the only school in the city, then they're probably not Yaitza, then it would be a problem. Well, let's say there are 10 schools, and combined, the 10 schools can only service 
70 or 80, 90 percent of the students, 50 percent of them, whatever the number is. It doesn't say how many Rabbeim they have. It's understood that if it's a small city, they'll have small Malandim. If it's more, there'll be more. But they said we're doing 75 percent. It does say that you can, So Tysus discusses it by, by the 25, what the Nafkamina Tysus says that whether you can take your son to another school, to another town. So it seems from Tysus, at least, that says that you should take your son to another town, then maybe if there isn't enough Malandim in this town, you would have a chiv to have your son commute to another uh, another town. So from Tysus' match, at least, that th- well, if there's another age your, your, your obligation it, it goes beyond the community's obligation. Let's say the community says, we're not creating a yeshiva. So it's bichlet into together machriven and machriven. You still have a chiv, right? But my question is, the takana itself... Is no, but Tyson says even more. Tyson says, says even more. That if I send my son to another town, and based on that, it will go over the 25 or 26, that they would have to hire an assistant. According to some of them, even though he's not from this town. Well, that's already so, I mean, greater than the Takanatari Shabangamali thing. Right, right, yeah. So I'm saying it's not simple, it's not clear cut that it's. Now, you have to, we have to analyze and understand why is why are they not doing it? Is it negligence? Is it because the children cannot be taught all the same way? That, that's enough to me. And of course, if everybody is on the same plane and the same thing, then we'll machriach, and if it's one town, then we'll machriach more of it. Is to hire more rabbin from out of town to come to, to teach the children. The, the ratio of 1 to 25. Let's say half the kids are very bright and half the kids aren't very bright. Is Rabbi Shul ben Gawel masakin the for the not-so-bright children too or only for the bright children? 100% for the not-so-bright. And Shachnach says that in the first. Shachnach says that there's no so difference. Is, so, so it doesn't matter if the kids are bright or not bright. A town has to supply mechanchem for the children or else the community is necessary together of machrivin or machrimin. Isn't that the simple Correct. reading of Allah Shulchanah? That is a simple how reading. In... How do you understand communities where they say, listen, we just can't get kids into school, our kids going to public school, our kids being shipped out of town. I understand towns say we we have no room, we have no ability. Well, to have room, fill in, you have time for Kashras. Shulchanah says machrivin or machrimin. Like, what would be the answer? So, um, just, I'm going to veer a drop off, and, and this might not be a little off topic, but I think it will help us understand the, the, the topic at hand. When yeshivas charge tuition, they charge you more tuition than it costs them for your child, okay? Could they do that or not? So according to this of Shur and Gamla, yes, they could, because if there's a child who can't pay for tuition, then we're forcing you, the parent, who's part of our community, because you're sending to my school, and you can afford it, to pay extra tuition. So the yeshiva can be me, as a richer parent, to pay more tuition, then a, par- a child who's in that community, that he's tack a part of that community, can be to teach the school to hire another Rebbe and to, um, you know, have to hire another Rebbe and service that child. So Lafizah, yeah, that if the school is only servicing 950 and there's a thousand children and these part, and they're really part of this community, the, the, the school would have to service them. Now the question is just, where do you draw the line if there's more than one school or there's more than one community? Well, so that's where the gray area is. more than one school, but uh, my argument is, it's not necessarily, it could be, it's the school's obligation, but the dinner machrivin and machrimin goes on fire in the school and fire in the whole city. And if the city doesn't come up with the solution, they have this, 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 uh, this, your, your lala of, of the Shulchanara. They have this, uh, But I don't know, if the machrimin, the question is, is machrimin machrimin um, a, a siba or is it a simon? 
In other words, does it come as a result of not having yeshivas? And that's why someone in China, certain communities in Brooklyn um, got decimated because they never had yeshivas in, that, in their communities. Or is it taka, like you said, a sim and not a siva? In other words, I, I'm not sure if we could touch up machim machrivin means that we're doing a mice of machim machrivin. It could be that it automatically will degenerate. Why yeshiva? ‫-מחריבן-אייר-וואי-שיין-אייר-למסקיים-אלה-דאבל-פיים-פלדי-שלבי-שרבן-אלה-דאבל-פיים-פלדי-שרבן-אלה-דאבל-פיים-פלדי
a child who we would like in our school. This is this this would be much more chamedic than before. In other words, before we were discussing that accepting a child to begin with. Here, once the child is part of your community, you have no right to send them home. Your mom is being uh, your mom is killing a kid. It's, it's worse than that. It's mom's shikuch the first in such a case. Whether it's nefesh as far as ruchness, but it's definitely shikuch nefesh. So once he's part of the community, you can't expel him from the community unless he's a mesa seramadiach. So I'm not sure what the question. I'm sorry, I just don't understand the question. Just because the mother is not from, forget. So you have to, you have to, you have to help him. He needs, he needs that much more education. How much chaymer is it to send a kid out of school? In today's day, it's 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 the worst. It's it's more chaymer than anything else. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, the the Torah tells us um, uh, when. I'm sure you may have, some may have mentioned it already before, but when it says a chais nachshim, Rashi says tivdik b'achel. The stipe in the kind of says that today you're not boydik b'achel. So he explains why. He says a mall, a girl would be home. There would be no school for her. And a neighbor, the only way to know if the family is kosher or not is by seeing the children. It says today, Faket, everybody, the, the outside influences in the stipe's times. Could you imagine what it would be today? Um, in the stipe's times, there was no internet. He said just the fact that they can read the newspapers is nishka raya, the shtub is nishka the, 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 rule, the house is not a good house because one brother may be uh, a little bit off. So Kavachayma, probably even a girl's school would have a dim of the yeshiva of Rabshua ben Gamla that you can't have them roaming the streets in Tzmamash Bikulach Nefesh. Okay. Now I know the I would even take it a step further. I would take it a step further. Camp today is the same dagger. Camp for children in the summer, they should be able to learn an hour or two a day. And 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 the day he saw Sava would have been the same darga as yeshivas. That a camp cannot throw a kid out stamazai if he's going to end up floating in the streets. It's an achrayis for the camp also. Okay. You know, it's brought in the Eishur Shalchenas at the Chafetz Chaim. Wow. This is from the Eishur Shalchenas Chelik Aleph of Tzaf Lamelach. That's what he says. They say about Leib Stein. He says in his whole life he. Only threw one boy out, right? But he says was was impossible. He was a mechutzis dimin, and he said that when a bach is nizrak from yeshiva and he goes out with tarbisra and dayla meemes, they're going to ask the the rosh yeshiva or the magitshir or the manal, etc. How how could he possibly? He knows he's going to be brought to din for it. Rebbeirach, is there a din of is there is there a takana of Rabbi Shua ben Gamla for girls too? It doesn't say anything in halacha, but you have to believe that. Today, because of the outside influences that we have, the zikha is the same takana. If girls don't have a school and girls don't have structure, achim they. I mean, today with what we have outside there, it's kamat not shy. So, is it beforeish? Does anyone say it beforeish in alocha? No, but in alocha there was no schools. Uh, the schools, the advent of schools is pretty pretty new. So. But I would have to believe, especially today, the way the world is structured and the way today where parents don't even have time to give to their children. If a child doesn't have a school, and I've been involved with a couple of, of people from who trying to get them back into schools, girls' schools, the mother's working, the father's working, the girls just go and, and, and go go from bad to worse and just push it to, to, to uh, I'll the but I think that I'm sure that the Connors of Shur Gamma would be applicable today. Yeah. So I have here um, from Rav Zulbishtin brings from his share, the Sabal Yasha. He says that he brings, he says, Pari only sent the Gvarim, right? Why, was, why wasn't he worried? Uh, he, said, he, he said he knew that if the woman stayed, Makushal, Tarbis, Mitzrayim, 
He said, let the Gvarim go. It's not going to make any difference. The women will ruin them when they come back. He said, because the side of a from the house is the woman, it's not the man. And he brings the gracious rabbi, that is, an Isha Tzadeka, that not for the Russia, but also I say Tzadik, and if I care the Tzadik, and Isha Tzadeka, but also I say Tzadik, so the women are Kaveya from Kaith of the house. That's what he said. He said, they that reason, that reason, yeah. And he said over that, Rabbi Lozor Rabinovich, the Minsk, right, the one who's in the back of the Gemara, he says uh, that when they started the Sarashanira school, the one at the girls' school, he said they, they were all worried about the Kala Malamid, the Bikai Tariq, and London Tiflis. He said, Rabbi Lozor Rabinovich said, you're He says, because if not, how is she going to know? He says, well, Bas Yisrael, she grew up in such a firm house, of course she's going to know. But he says, today, the houses, father and the mother, everybody's out. The girls are in the street. He says, they're not learning from the home of what they should be learning. So, Havachayma, for Gigeris, she's supposed to be Shkaira, she's supposed to teach a Jewish girl, Tyra. That's what, the, that was the fact of the was. He says, it was the scabble by the island. And that's why, you know, the, the, the girls' school. And as I said, Yasha said, Avadah would be a dinner with Yeshua ben Gamla. Uh, and then the Ridvan, he says that in, in Russia and in Lita, he says where the girls went to gymnasiums, that's what they call the Friar schools then. And not only were they became the Skalkal, but they ruined their brothers, their husbands, and their children. So the Ridvaz Paskin that Al-Tailud with Akhanas Yeshua Ben Gamla is about the girls of the exact same thing. And the Mishra in Yeridea Chalik Bey sort of implies a similar thing as well. But again, the question just arises is, is if there are 10 schools in a community like Brooklyn, Lakewood, where there's a metropolis of different communities, if, you know, one parent decides, I want to send to this school and I don't want to send to that school, and you're giving them the option of another school where they can get in, not uh, not fake I mean, unfortunately, sometimes a girl gets kicked out. Um, the the school ruins it for all the other schools by telling them, don't take her, don't take her, don't even give her a second chance. But if they give them a second chance, then I don't think we can call them a Saying if a girl has, or a boy has a chance to go to a school that's a legitimately good school, not necessarily the school they wanted to. That's a vada. Oh, the parents want. Well, the parents, they're about the community with Makayim, Takanas, who showed their language. So in the case of, let's say, there's a VAD that tries to get people in, or there are people who are Sadiqim here in Brooklyn, where I live, who work on getting girls in and boys into yeshivas. But again, up to their level. And sometimes, unfortunately, parents are busy with a stigma more than the chemich of their child and don't accept it then I'm not so sure that the community is responsible. Again, it's a gray area. I, I, I don't want to... Each, each case has to be judged by Sher Husham. And I, I, I am not Makana, all these Manalim and Rabbonim who have to decide, yes, no, maybe. It's, 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 uh, I don't know how they sleep. Yeah, it's, it's true. I wouldn't sleep either. It's, it's really deciding life and death in a way. Because they yeah. said to throw a kid out of a school, and Yonah Chinuch, he said, you need a bezdin of Chavgimel. So he also seems to understand that it's a matter of life and death. It's, it's, it's also, today, a kid gets thrown out from one second to the next. Let the Rebbe calm down. Let the principal calm down. Never kick a guy out the day he does something wrong. Wait a week. If you're still so steamed, then maybe you have a right to kick him out. But a lot of times, it's reactions. And then the child gets destroyed because, ah, whatever I do is no good. The Rebbe can't always see the, uh, the, the child's view. And then the father, for sure, can't see the child's view because he has to side with the Rebbe because why not? And, and no Normally the Rebbe is right, but that, that's the problem today.
everything is done reactionary without like you said the Chav Gimel I think is just pushed to get out to get the people together and then see oh maybe you know with a little time we can deal with it. today we're very quick to kick children out Rebera thank you very much for your time and that's Lach, and, uh, and thank you for bringing this to attention to the island. We hope that by setting up Hevel PM Shal Tavayka Shal Beis Rabbam, with that we'll take a bring back the Beis Hamikdash Bez Hashem and be able to bring the Karbonis. I'm speaking to Rabbi Yehuda Gerber. He's a noted historian. We're speaking to you, I believe, in Yerushalayim. Welcome, Rabbi Yehuda. Thank you, thank you. Beit Shemesh, but close enough. Close enough. So, question. We're finding now yeshivas that are, quote-unquote, exclusive. Everybody wants to be exclusive. It's not unlike the the uh, secular universities, like if you went to Harvard or Yale, the Seven Sisters, Princeton. looks great on your resume. You get a better job app, follows you through life. And now Jews are doing the same thing. They have the exclusive. Um, basically, it's covered. Ich yeh du nicht. I got in, my kid got in, your kid didn't do, get, didn't get in. As well as, from a practical point of view, it allows for, you know, standards. You know, here are the kids who have the highest IQs get in, or who understand the best, etc. most serious kids. And we're struggling with just understanding that is, is this a Jewish concept or not, historically? The um, divorced kids, kids from divorced homes, kids whose fathers maybe have, you know, distasteful jobs. And you see a lot of it in Israel, too. Forget about should you be, you know, Sardim struggle to get in. I can't even imagine what it's like for an Ethiopian to try to get in, right? So is is all this um, exclusive, exclu- you know, exclusivism, um, sort of on a certain level, racism, snobism, um, which goes on in the secular world and has, you know, transferred over to our world. What's the history of it? Or is there no history because we never really had formal schooling? That's a great question. Um, I want to emphasize that um, I'm answering as a historian. In other words, I'm not saying any view on it. the contemporary scene, and I have nothing to say about that, um, just what historically has been. The, the, I would divide schooling in history to younger age schooling. And we're talking about male schooling primarily because there was no formal schooling for girls for most of history. Um, in like the Cheder or Talmud Taira, a younger age. And then Yeshiva would be a second and separate category. For the younger category, it was mostly communal. In other words, the Kahal uh, ran it, controlled it, and funded it. And therefore, it was, in theory at least, uh, open to all members of the community. Um, and uh, it belonged to the community. And it was funded by the Kahal, which is the taxpayers of the community. So it ended up being that there was an element of, uh, you know, the, the ones who had the money and power, definitely their children, the Malamid wanted to take care of better because they ran the Kahal and they were the ones essentially who paid his salary. But in theory, at least, uh, the these Kahal schools were open to the public, were open to the entire community. That's on the younger the younger kids. In yeshivas, which were for older Talmudim, they were generally more exclusive. And for the most part, it was by the nature of the institution itself, not so much by a lack of acceptance. And that's because most poor children or less well-off or not from non-rabbinic homes, they simply didn't go to yeshiva. And when it came to 12, 13 years old, they finished cheder, they went to work. They apprenticed at the shoemaker or, or someone else local, and they got a job to help support the family. So yeshivas, by their very nature, were 
I guess, somewhat exclusive institutions, but not by a an acceptance policy, but more by like the the natural economic and social reality of what it was like in most Jewish communities throughout most of history. They just they just didn't have the tools to get in. You're saying they didn't have the education to get in. Yeah, or the economic means, meaning not not because not because of tuition, but because they had to get a job. They weren't continuing to yeshiva. Most people did not go to yeshiva. Most not because they weren't accepted, but just they didn't go. They got a job and helped the family. So let's and talk about wealth. Let's talk about the so let's talk about the kids who did get into yeshiva. Yeah. Right. Um, they could afford it, or they understood enough. Right. Right. What happens if somebody came from a divorced background? There was divorce then too. In other words, we, we understand, look, if, if they didn't understand, you couldn't get into Volusian if you didn't, weren't a top student, you couldn't keep up in Volusian, right? But let's say you came from a tainted background. Your father was a, was a plumber, you were, a, and I have nothing against plumbers. We have a plumber who sends in Shilas here, who sends in answers to riddles. Somebody from Miami, I don't know who he is, but a, a huge Talmud Chacham. He said he's a plumber. It's Megazak Tavelcha plumbers. But my point is somebody was, uh, they came from a divorce. The, the, the father ran away with another woman. Like, Do, do we find that type of um, um, ostracism based on that? I don't, I don't remember offhand that we see ostracism like that. I, I know that all those types of people existed, like you said, divorce and, and all that. I, these type of kids from, from these type of challenged backgrounds would be less likely to go to yeshiva in general because they were poorer, so you know, they probably didn't end up there. But would, if they had gone, I can't see anything in the Valajan acceptance policy or Mir or, you know, tells Tobutka, anything like that in those days, that would have barred their entry. But again, I don't remember any specific instance where where uh, where they where someone like that was not accepted. I don't I don't recall seeing such a thing. I'm curious, what's your opinion as a historian of of this sort of this new exclusivism that we have in schools today? And I, I'm curious, is it even, have we become even more exclusive than Ivy League schools? So, for example, until recently, until the latest Supreme Court ruling, uh, affirmative action required Ivy League schools, which they were, which the Ivy League schools are very supportive of, you have to have X number of African-American children, even though their grades could be much lower. Right, that was affirmative action. Yeah. Right. We don't have we, we, we our exclusivism is, is greater than theirs. We don't allow for affirmative action. Um is is that true? Is it not true? Like how would you rate I mean in Israel I think it's even in a way more exclusive than it is in the United States. It's more political. What is the status of schooling and how does it compare to the historical status of schooling? A few things changed uh, w with schooling that, that uh, changed the dynamics, whether it's justified or not. And again, I'm not coming to make any judgment on today's schooling. Just from a historical perspective, it has changed. The main change is, is that now nearly 100% of, of Talmudim who finished um, Cheder continue to yeshiva. And that used to be, I don't know. Two percent. It was almost nobody, and now we're expecting there's a societal expectation that everyone continues to yeshiva. So that's a, a fundamental shift, and a fundamental shift like that is gonna is gonna create changes. Uh, the second change I would point out is that it's no longer a kahal system. It's no longer a community. Um, who collects taxes and funds a community school that's open for everybody. It's generally private schools, especially in the United States, but to a certain extent in Israel. Israel is a bit more complicated. Like you said, everything's political here. Um, and private schools, you know, basically have 
an, a certain independence um, that that allows them more more uh, at the cheder level. And again, at the yeshiva level, yeshivas were private since the time of Alajan's time. Um, but uh, but the the that's the second shift I, I would say. The third shift I would point out change or shift is that to the best of my knowledge there was no tuition uh, back in the day in yeshivas or chadarm chadarm if they were uh, public and meaning if they're kahal owned and they were collect they were part of the budget of the kahal budget that was collected through taxes and yeshivas were always running a deficit and they always had a fundraise and it was always complicated to fundraise but they never uh, collected tu- they never charged tuition and today the custom is that they do charge tuition and once there's a financial incentive involved then i would imagine that would lead to some sort of changes in that realm as well. So those are three changes that I would point out that might have contributed to lead to this uh, new phenomenon, so to speak. And how do you find the phenomenon? Like, is it different today than it was then? Um, the the elitism always existed. Exclusivism always existed. I think that's in every society and every culture, and it definitely was in Jewish society then. Not only in Chinook, but in the way community was restructured, there was always a financial elite, there was always a rabbinical elite. And there was a, they used to say in Europe, there was the Shana Yidin and the Prasta Yidin. Every shtetl had the Shana Yidin, that was the wealthy businessman, and the Rabbanim, the Tzavid Chama, the Hane. And then there was the Prasta Yidin, which were the laborers, the workers, the Amainam, we would call them. And that was a, you know, Melitza, a somewhat pejorative term that was used, but that was, that was common knowledge. Everyone used it. So elitism always existed, even outside of Chinuch. But again, the, 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 to answer your question, the exclusivity was practiced differently. For instance, I'll give you a couple of examples. In Velazhin, in order to help their fundraising, they, uh, they, they capped how many Talmidim can be accepted from each town, each shtetl, each city. In other words, they wanted to have as many cities contributing Bachram coming to Velazhin. This way they could fundraise in more cities. They'll come to the town and they say, hey, you have two Talmidim from your town studying here. Well, in Velazhin, so you have to support our yeshiva. And if, if they would get 20 from one town and zero from another town, that would limit their fundraising capabilities. So they would cap the number of Talmidim from each town that they would get in order to be able to fundraise more. And Bachram would play tricks. They would pretend they were from another town just so they could get in, uh, you know, and stuff like that. So that's a certain method of, of, of uh, exclusivity. And then there's natural exclusivity that took place then, which can't take place now. Like I said before, if only the elite are going to yeshiva in the first place, then obviously it's going to be an elite institution. Today, that 100% of Talmudim are going to yeshivas, so that's going to create more uh, um, layered um, yeshivas in the first place, you know, better and worse and, and more exclusive, less exclusive, just because there's an entire demographic that for 2,000 years never went to yeshiva, and now they are attending yeshivas in the first place. You say 2% moved on past La Cheder, that's it? I, I don't know if it's 2%, it was very low. I can't say, I can't put an exact number, but it was very, very low. And when did Cheder finish? Like, at what point did people go to work? Usually around bar mitzvah, but you know, some started to drop earlier, some started to drop later. It really depended on each family. They made their own decision. Um, chadarim were, more, were much less formal than today's. It wasn't like you went from grade to grade. Um, you did have another form of exclusivity then, which I'm, I'm just thinking of now. You sometimes had private chadarim, which were kind of like private yeshivas, just for younger Bach Talmudim. And that, that, that was, you know, the, 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 the who paid the Milan 
Muhammad on their own, not from the Kahal, they, they, they owned him, and they owned the Cheder, and it was only for their kids. And therefore, those were very exclusive. Those were very elite. It was only for, I don't know, the rich boys or whoever it was. That yeah, so Sometimes, especially in bigger cities, when there, one Cheder for the whole community wasn't sufficient. So in bigger cities, you had more than one Cheder, so very often some of those Chadarim were public and some of those Chadarim were private, and the private ones tended to be more exclusive. So just as an aside, it would seem that we have the best educated um, society in history. Is that fair to say? Yes. So just as a, does it interest you, shouldn't we have bigger Talmud Chachamim than we've ever had in history? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to grade Unfortunately, I'm not a Talmud Chachamim, so I don't know how to grade them. <laughs> okay. What the, the Takhanas of Yeshua ben Gamla, were the Chadzarim of the cities based upon that? And each city had a cheder, and basically everybody had to be able to go to cheder, etc. So the the Tzakanas of Yeshuv and Gamla um, were, were like this benchmark, certain parameters uh, of of how a cheder is supposed to uh, look. Um, so the the basic. Um, idea of of that every city has to have a cheder and and uh, and the kahal has to k- take care of it and make sure the malamed is paid and and stuff like that. That we do see. You do see Shilas and truth. You do see historical records and kahal records that that there are concerned with this basic idea of of the ideal of Jewish finish. And that's by the way why um, Jews were much more literate than their non-Jewish counterparts for most of history because they were so concerned about education and so concerned about Chinuch and, and, and Chadar. And, uh, and, and it comes from this Yishu bin Gamla Takanis. So in a general sense, yes, it does appear in the literature, in the sources that they were, they were trying to live up to this ideal. But when you get down into the nitty-gritty details of the parameters that Yeshu bin Gamla set down at the exact class size and all that, it gets a little iffy there because they weren't exactly following the rules, and that's understandable. The societal realities and economic realities that most of these places lived in didn't make it always feasible that we're going exactly, you know, according to the Tukhanas of Yeshu bin Gamla. And, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you, you don't see that in the sources. You don't see that like, oh, no, what is what's going to be with the Yeshu bin Gamla and class size? You don't, okay. I, I almost never so see that. So what about in larger cities, and there were many, many larger Larger cities. Right. Sure. What happened when Cheder A said, look, you know, we don't want him, let him go to another one. Like Rishul means the city has an obligation to educate his children. How do you prevent, like, you know, NIMBY, not in my backyard, send him to the other Cheder? How did they, do we see Chuvist addressing this issue? Sure, I'm 100% sure that there are, and I don't, I don't remember offhand, unfortunately. And I, 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 I do remember that there was, there was uh, in the larger cities, places like Krakow, Lublin, later on Warsaw, and of course Vilna was a large city as well. They, they had many more uh, institutions than, than smaller ones, and there was always competition between them, and the ones that were private were always more exclusive than the ones that were public. It was, it was not only in Chadarm, it was in yeshivas, it was in shuls. Uh, they had private shuls and public shuls, and the private shuls, the rich guy who owned the shul didn't let the poor chavra come to his shuls, only for him and his rich friends. <laughs> so you even had it so in shuls. Forget about Chadarm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what happened? What, did you have issues of kids who couldn't get into the cheder because they couldn't afford it? No, because there was always the public one. Today, no today, so today there are, there are some communities where there are parents who cannot afford it, and they send to public school. How does that align oh, with... Wow. Yeah, how does that align with historically what, what, the way we've been? Um, well, well, since there was no tuition and and the 
Cheder essentially was the public school, meaning the, the Kahal was a separate autonomous entity for most of its history. You couldn't send to a non-Jewish school. You were Jewish. The, Jew, the non-Jewish school wouldn't accept you. And the Jewish Cheder was the public school. It was public because it was publicly funded by the Jewish community. So, and there was no tuition, so you couldn't like not accept someone because they couldn't pay tuition. So those two factors made it nearly impossible to have a situation where someone would be forced to go to a non-Jewish school because they so couldn't why why is it why is it that in a city like Warsaw, which had I don't know half a million Jews, was able to yeah. provide for the education of every child, even those who couldn't afford it? And today you have communities that are a lot smaller than that that if a kid can't afford it, they send them home and they say, look, it's your parents' problem, it's not our problem, which I can understand because the parent, the school says, well, we, we have to pay our teachers. What changed from today till now? So Warsaw is a perfect example to see how that changed because Warsaw would be the interim period. It would be in between the small shtetl situation to what you described as today. Pre-war Warsaw was a very huge urban environment like you just described. Um, and in a very, very diverse kind of system. But it was also after the collapse of the Kahal, which, which is somewhat obvious, under such a huge urban environment, you couldn't have such an organized, structured community. And therefore, in a place like Warsaw, there were all types of Khadar, there's hundreds uh, of schools. And some of those did charge tuition. There we see it for the first time. There were some private ones that charged tuition, and there was only for rich kids. Very often, like in Israel, it was political. It was aligned with certain political parties. And the poorer kids uh, went to the old time Khadarim, which was lousy at that point by the early 1900s and was underfunded because the Kahal system wasn't working anymore and uh, and they didn't get a great education. They got very lousy, poor education. And then there was all the secular and traditional who anyways were sending to public school, which, which by then, you know, non-Jewish schools were accepting Jewish kids in the early 1900s, so they were able to go to public school. So you had a lot of kids in Warsaw going to public school. I don't know how many religious kids were going to public school. I don't know if there's a statistic on that, but, um, but that would be a bridge between the tragic scenario you just described and the old time scenario in the small shtetl where essentially the cheder was open to everyone. So did we ever have in our history, maybe you said we did, where kids were sent home because they just couldn't pay and ended up either going to public school or homeschooling, etc.? Or is what's happening in America today a first? So again, since there was no tuition for most of history, it's it's uh, it's it, they they were I wouldn't say they were they you know they they couldn't pay because there wasn't tuition. I I would say that that sometimes a poorer kid would be discriminated against in by the Rebbe and the Cheder because he knew that he could take advantage of the kid because because the kids the kid was an orphan and the kid's mother you know could never wasn't paying taxes to the community anyway and 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 uh, and and he would be more likely to be kicked out or punished or sent home uh, I that that you see very often in the literature that that, that happened that poor kids were taken advantage of but um, but not because they couldn't pay because there's no tuition but more because they were able to take advantage of them because they they were they were like they were powerless. They, 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 they didn't have the same protection with the community as, as richer kids did. So we have a unique situation then today. Uh, yeah, because of all these shifts, because of the, the com community structures changed, and because tuition changed, and because of 100% near 100% yeshiva attendance, which was much lower then. Oh. 
Rabbi Huda, thank you very much for your time and forward. Thank you. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Joining us from New York is Mr. Shuli Halpert. He's a school acceptance Askin. Shuli, tell us how you got this job. Going back 16 years ago when my son got married and after going through a pastor with him at that time, uh, going back to 1999, I realized that parents needed help, first of all, in navigating through the school system, which was now opening many other branches all over the country for all types of boys and girls that were not making it in the mainstream. Uh, that was one issue. And the second was that I, through my own experience, I learned that as time was going on, you had to learn how to talk to teenagers, especially the ones who were struggling, in a different manner, certainly in a different manner in the way I grew up and maybe even the generation after me grew up, because the world is changing by the day and the street is getting worse and worse and slowly sleep seeping into our communities and our uh, our lifestyle as much as we try to insulate ourselves from it and uh, started on a very small level with a close friend of mine, Mike Rosenthal, out of Flatbush, um, and it has exploded over the years where I'm seeing quite a number of families a week now, probably over the last 16 years, approaching 2,000 boys and girls. I've relocated to Jackson uh, a year and a half ago, so I'm also now dealing more with Lakewood cases than I did in the past, but I'm still in Brooklyn two to three days a week in my regular job, so I try to coordinate that when I'm in Brooklyn, I'm able to see the people there, but sometimes people actually call, come all the way out to Jackson to meet with me because the first thing I tell parents is I can't try to even suggest or guide them in any way without meeting the boy or the girl. And that's even with a large amount of kids that I have already met, you have to deal with each one on an individual basis because you need to see what their struggle is, where it's coming from, what the home is like, et cetera, et cetera. So share with us some stories of the people you deal with. So if I had to categorize, I, I mean, I, meet, I do meet a lot of, let's say, boys finishing elementary school going into Masifta who are in the mainstream, but I'm not sure, are not sure which Masifta to go to. If they are dealing with school issues where they, they struggle, they have learning disabilities. And when I say that, I'm not talking about major disabilities. You're just talking that they're on the shvach side. Unfortunately, our system is built that the Mitzvahim have a much easier time getting in, and they have to pick between five different yeshivas that accept them. And in the same classroom are boys who can't get one yeshiva to accept them. But very often, the boys do need some kind of modified program where the learning level is a little softer or the level of be'in, the moral that they're learning also might be too much for them. And that's an amazing, a large number. There's a lot of boys today who can't learn the litvish style to learn a blot a month. They get lost very quickly. Now, some parents are on the ball, they realize it, and they deal with it. And uh, they make the right decisions, but unfortunately, there are other parents out there who, for whatever reason, whether it's shidduchim or just prominence in the neighborhood, can't deal with the fact that their son is not in the mainstream yeshiva. And the same thing goes for the girls. I'm still dealing now. I have girls in, in Borough Park. I have girls here in Lakewood that still don't have a high school to go to. Um, and each one is, a, you know, a different reason. Lakewood is certainly more of a question of space. It, it, it sounds like it's an excuse, but it's not an excuse. 
There really isn't enough room in Lakewood. But on occasion, what happens is at the last minute, some girls get in, and this frustrates the parents to no end because why did they get in and not me? And the truth is, I don't want to go into the deep reasons. Uh, I'm not a mumcha in the reasons. I just know what the feeling is like for some of these parents who are on August the 15th, uh, Labor Day is in two weeks, uh, and and they're not in school. But I do want to point out one thing, that with all the people that I deal with now, and I started this 15 years ago, uh, the ratio of boys to girls was probably three to one. Um, the girls, unfortunately, Loyalenu have caught up. There might be a bigger problem today with girls struggling with Yiddishkeit and struggling in school than there is in boys. What, what happens to the boys and girls who don't get into schools? So the real answer is that there are schools available for them. The parents have to come to the table. It's, it's not easy. A perfect example of that, which I deal with with the girls more than the boys, is the ICHUD program, which opened, I don't know, if it's 15 years ago. It has a modified learning program, but it's in a mainstream school, and they keep each grade in that school for all four years so that the boy or the girl should feel like they're in that specific school and they're not in some special school. But 80, 90% of the parents fight, fight, but they don't want to hear about Yichud, and they'll tell me horror stories that were told over to them. But the bottom line is they will never keep up. Not even close. And I tell these people what do you mean, all the time. What do you mean they'll never keep up? I don't follow. That they will not be able to pass any class, any class in the ninth grade in any mainstream, in any mainstream girls' school. And Ichud works with that. They will mainstream these girls for the classes that they think they can keep up in that school in the regular classes. But I know the frustration, and parents just don't want the girls don't want, they know what it means to be labeled, and it's very hard for them to come to the table. But some parents realize it's the best thing for them. Why put pressure on a girl? It's not a question that maybe she'll make it. And I tell the parents all the time, if you don't want to go to Ichud, it's not a problem. Take the evaluation by Ichud and bring me the paper that Ichud says you're overqualified and you belong in the mainstream. That's the best piece of evidence I could bring to a regular school to say this girl can make it, Ichud evaluated her. But they never, those parents who I tell that to never take the evaluation, unfortunately, because they know deep down that she's going to be put right placed right at the 50% of what Ichud is all about. And I do, I'm not judging or blaming the parents. It's a very, very hard pill to swallow. But on the okay. other hand... Does Lakewood have that too? Uh, certainly not under that name. I'm not familiar, so I, I, I can't say. I, I heard I had divorcees tell me, and this happened right. to me just last week in Shola, two weeks ago, a guy came up to me. He said his sister-in-law is divorced, and she cannot get her kid into any school in Lakewood. Right, this, right. Is, this is not a learning problem. This is more of no, a, no. a social... No, this uh, is this a category, category problem. Children from separated homes and divorced homes, number one, the chances of having a, a child struggling goes up probably by 30%, number one, just because of the home makeup. These are Lebedeckian assignments. Loyalena, when someone passes away, there are 20 people around the family to come and help. And, and things somehow work out. But here you run into family issues. This one doesn't want that one to talk to him, to talk to her. I've had fathers who've gone off the derech 
got divorced, left a wife with the kids, but still insist on having a relationship with these kids. And even if they're asking to send them to mainstream schools, if the fathers have gone off the barracks, they have them every other Shabbos in homes where they're Mechalah Shabbos, eating treif, watching whatever. How can you expect this boy or girl to function on a normal level with the rest of his classmates if that's what he's subject to every other week? And this is out there. It's not a joke. I wouldn't say it's, uh, you know, all over the world, but there's, there's too many cases like that. And you have to look at it from the yeshiva's point of view. You know, does, does a Rebbe or even a parent want a boy sitting next to their son who's, who's, who's exposed to this stuff? And then on the other hand, what did the child do wrong? It did nothing wrong. So that's one issue with, with divorce. And the second one is tuition. I, I've seen this over and over again where the mother comes in and says that my ex-husband is taking care of the tuition. And I can tell you there's a lot of schools who just won't deal with it. I don't have a right to ju- judge the, the school. I don't have a right to judge anybody. But this is a major issue. And even if they get the father down there, you know, uh, and, and you don't want to resort to, to, you know, harder tactics on how to try to collect tuition. So schools just shy away, and it ends up they need a family member to come in and, and back the mother or the father, although most of the time it's the mother that's that's holding the family together to be able to make sure that the tuition get pay, gets paid, even if the tuition is modified. But but that, that category itself is a big problem today. And the, the rate of divorce today compared to 50 years ago, I don't need to tell anybody. It's just all over the place. I, I didn't have a boy from a divorced family in my school. I can't think throughout all elementary school. I don't think I had one. So tell us some problems that you're encountering. I mean, so the, the, the women who are divorced who say their kids can, can, cannot get into school, and these are women who husbands remain from, they were from, the kids were from. Like, what is that all about? And this is bordering on me getting on to another topic as to why it's happening. My concentration is when they bring me the boy or the girl, 75% of them come to me depressed. There's no way that a yeshiva boy or a Bessiakov girl can live in a home where there's a divorce and they can be upbeat. I mean, most of the time it has a, a, a real damaging effect on them. And that's not because I think nobody should get divorced either. I'm not a specialist in that either. But the bottom line is there's only one parent there. You know, every boy, every girl needs two parents. The boy needs his father, you know, for the yira and his mother for the hava. And a girl, it's just the opposite. You know, uh, people always ask me, uh, and I find this trend, a girl who's struggling in school has a much harder time with her mother than her father. And the reason is easily because the mother went through the school system, followed the tzniyas levels, and did what she has to do. And when her daughter is struggling with tzniyas, she can't deal with it. And the same thing is with a boy who's not functioning in yeshiva or is turning away from what the yeshiva is offering him. And the father says to himself, I went through this. I did it. Why can't you do it? But the boy automatically runs to the mother for, for some love, and the girl runs to the father. I see it every other day. And uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what the answer is on this specific point. It's just to deal with every, every kid. And, I, you know, there are some yeshivas, uh, most yeshivas who are dealing with this today, when they have a child from a separation or a divorce and they're in the school, the Rebbe takes a, a, a special interest because he knows that that boy needs it. I'm going to say something now which may sound radical, but any Rebbe that has a boy in his class 
and he doesn't know that the boy's parents are divorced, should find another line of work. So why don't the parents that I'm talking about, where both sides say, look, they're both from kids normal, why can't they get into school? So, listen, I'm not going to say it's 100%. There are divorces out there that are civil. I've met with, I've had people in my house where the parents are divorced and they both come for placement in school. And those are the easier cases to work with. They both know what they want, but they have a much better chance than the ones where there's no communication and there's fighting going on and allegations, et cetera, et cetera. You know, obviously sometimes the level of the yeshiva that they're going to go to has to drop a little bit because they're dealing with these issues. Can you share a few stories that people can understand the grief that parents go through? You mean in general? Yeah. Well, the one that comes to me all the time and... Uh, I, I try to explain to parents is when their first two boys go to yeshiva and excel and are doing great, and the father somehow convinces himself that he's an excellent parent, which he may very well be, but then comes the third boy, and he's substantially schwacher in his ability to learn. His IQ is lower. But the father doesn't grasp that and says, wait a minute, why can't you be like your brothers? Now, if you take that point and then tell the father, this boy has to go to a different yeshiva, and guess what? He's now in the yeshiva where he has only one child. He's got to pay full tuition. Where had his son stayed in the yeshiva where his brothers are? The, the, the tuition would be discounted. Now, it sounds like this father only thinks about money and doesn't think about his kids, but it's not true. The emotional pressure that Balabatim are under today, you'll do everything you can to find the right yeshiva for your kids, but at the same time, you want to be able to pay the tuition. And then you take this boy and send him to an off-mainstream yeshiva, and then guess what happens? I get this from parents all the time. They end up in the yeshiva where the boy needs tremendous emotional support. But the parents look at it and say, you know what? He's not learning anything there. He's not learning anything in English. But your tuition is three times the price of the mainstream. It doesn't make sense. But they don't realize how many hours and hours these off the mainstream yeshivas, including Waterbury, including Eaton Town, including other yeshivas. And by the way, those yeshivas have no problem mentioning their names because they are run by people who have one goal in life, and that's to build our kids up and get them out of their yeshiva and back to the mainstream. They're not counting how many tuition beds they can collect because those yeshivas, if they had 50 more or 100 more beds, they would be able to fill them, unfortunately. So, you know, this frustration is very, very, very difficult. And in a more general way, I, I want to point out two points that are so important today with teenagers for parents to understand them, and they struggle with it. Number one, which I can do research for a boy or a girl for yeshiva and work on it and, and, and make sure I have all my information correct. But when you go to that teenager and recommend a school, if that teenager said, my friend told me this is not the right place for me, it doesn't matter if every goggle in America will agree with me. This is a fact. Every teenager 
who gets information from another teenager. That is halacha l'moshim yisinai, and you can't break it. You got to work with it. You got to work around it. Teenagers are influenced by their friends, not by what Rabbein tells them as far as school placement is concerned. That's number one. And one A is, and this is a this is a killer. Every time a boy or girl starts to struggle, parents are looking for someone to blame. They call me up. My son was thrown out of yeshiva, but I know exactly why. My neighbor's kid, he's a mushkif, and he slept my kid away. I see this day and night. And I tell parents, if you think you're going to drive that friendship away from that boy or girl, by telling them not to go, you're pushing them right there. You tell a child today, I don't want you to ever talk to that boy down the block because he's horrible, you will, you will automatically push him there. Stop blaming other people's children for two reasons. Number one, you may be wrong. How do you know your child didn't pull that boy or girl away? And number two, you have to come up with a system and work with your rough and with the rebellion and yeshiva, how to navigate that child onto the right way. But if you're going to tell them, stay away from A and stay away from B, it, it just doesn't work. It just, there's something about that friendship that is driving the boy or the girl there. And if you don't learn how to deal with that realistically, you're just driving them further and further away. How many kids are in school for the new school year? I, I don't keep those statistics. I only go by the ones who contact me. So I might have 10%, 80%, 40%. I have at least 10 girl cases that I'm dealing with now that don't have a school to go to girls. And I'm working probably on uh, as many boys. But they're in the and, do you, and, do you, and do you work in Lakewood too? Yes. yes. And uh, I'm sure there are at least 70 girls in Lakewood that don't have a high school to go to. I'm, I'm picking that number off the top of my head, but just based on experience. And, and they've been dealing with this problem for years, and they can't. They can't. And what happens to them? There's a vibe that works with it, and eventually, somehow, they get them in. And now, when I give that answer, everybody says, why doesn't eventually happen pace up time? The damage that is done to a girl who has to go to sleepaway camp in the eighth grade and doesn't have a high school, it'll take him a year, six months to recover. Socially, emotionally, it destroys. And the same thing for boys, but much worse for girls. And I have girls, I have parents calling me every single day. And it's, it's complicated by the fact that during the month of the July, and the first two weeks of August, there's nobody to negotiate with. And I don't know if I can blame them. They're entitled to their time off. Well, today happens to be August 15th, and I can start leaving messages and getting calls back from Manalim and directors of schools to see what we can do if we can squeeze another kid somewhere. And that brings me to something I mention all the time. If you're moving from New York State to Lakewood, get your kids into Yeshiva before you come. Don't come, sell your house, move in. Uh, this happens in droves where they come in and it's September and maybe uh, two of their four kids are in school or even three of their four. But the other one, do any of the kids go to public school? But certainly in other communities, not in the more yeshivashi communities, it does happen. It does happen. How do, how, do, how do you tell parents that or children that they're unwanted members of society? How do you, how do you say that? So, I mean... 
let's look at it. Let's just take a, a an elementary school that doesn't, and this is very very common in Lakewood. They don't have a high school. You know, in Brooklyn, most of the schools have an elementary school and a high school, and they're really very good about it. It took time, but they pay unless the child is an Ashkafa problem. So they just slide into high school, even if they're weak. But if you have a school that doesn't have a high school, the high schools don't feel in that Christ that they have to take that child in. They'll say there's seven, eight other schools in Flatbush. Let them take it. Tell us your worst non-acceptance story of the impact it had on a family. I, I had a case in Brooklyn where a girl was in the eighth grade in the mainstream high school. She's from back from seminary already. But for some reason, the school she was in refused to take her into the high school because they felt she was so academically low that she belonged either in Ichud or one of the other specialty programs like Patak, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I met with the family. I met with the girl. This went on for six months, and the school was not there. And we went to Rabbonin, and Rabbonin passed that they had to take her in. And they still didn't take her. And, and I just didn't know where to turn. And at the end of August, I found the one Rav who just went after that school, and threatened them with threats, which I can't go into. And that worked. And then I was contacted by the school saying, you know what, we changed our mind. If you can get them tutors, we'll take them in. Sometimes schools are just such, there's such action that's going on there that, that there's, no, there's nobody to talk to. And the same thing happens with, with uh, you know, kids get thrown out very easily. I, I have people in the Chinook world who don't have a problem kicking a kid out and they and then they give them my card. He'll find you a school. How so crazy is that? Surely if people want to reach you, how would they do that? My number is 917-692-2702. Uh, I can be reached at that number. Either you can leave WhatsApp, you can leave a text message, a voicemail. And I try to get back. It's getting a little more difficult. I can't say I get back as quickly as I used to, only because of the numbers. But I do have a partner by the name of Mike Rosenthal, who's still in Flatbush. And I'll give you his number. We will call everybody back. It doesn't necessarily mean that we can help them. We try. Um, his number, Mike Rosenthal's number is 347-351-1998. And if I had to summarize with one very good feeling, I would just tell you that I've gone probably to close to 75 to 100 chasanas of boys and girls who have struggled so mightily, and yet Baruch Hashem came back. And you know, when you walk into a Kabbalah's Panam and you see the father of the boy or the girl, and I make eye contact with them, and nobody in the room knows where those boys and girls were five, six, three, eight years ago. It's uh, I can't tell you it takes away all the pain, but it certainly makes it a little easier to absorb. This is not a line of work you want to go into unless you're ready to see deep, deep pain, frustration, etc. In, in in all circles and on all on all levels. Surely you should be convinced, Mamisha, you, you're a tzaddik. I'm going to send you a clipple before Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> Thank you. Anytime, please. Okay. Cultive, take care. Bye-bye. All the best.